Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. So Numbers 25, not a pretty chapter at all because of the sin of Israel, the depravity of Israel. They've been complaining a lot while in the wilderness, and others like Korah had even challenged the role of leadership that Moses had in Aaron, and then Aaron and Miriam challenged the leadership role that Moses had, and all were judged by God. It was all dealt with, but their sin up to this point had not been sexual sin, and tonight in Numbers 25, we find that's exactly where they're at. But in this difficult chapter, as far as the depravity that befell upon Israel, Numbers 25, there's also a beautiful portion. I titled the chapter, therefore, based off the beauty, not the corruption, a covenant of peace. And Numbers 25, verses 12 and 13, the key verses, speaking about Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, God said, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. And so in this dark chapter for the children of Israel, there was one extremely bright light of a young man named Phineas, who decided that even when the rest of his nation was going down a path that was not good, he would take a stand for the Lord. So we learned that after Balaam, and we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks, but after Balaam prophesied four blessings over Israel, and we find those blessings in Numbers 23 and 24, chapters 23 and 24, Balaam and I keep writing Barak, but it's Black, it's an L. I keep putting an R in. It made it into my notes again uh, this week as well. But Berlack. Anyways, the king of Moab, that's easier for me. Balaam and the prophet, a pagan prophet, by the way, and the king of Moab went their separate ways. Now, in Numbers 25, Moab used their women to entice the people of Israel to commit harlotry against the Lord. However, in the book of Numbers and Revelation, we learn that Balaam was behind Moab's enticement of Israel. Balaam was a prophet for hire, and he was greedy for gain. And he wanted the wealth that Balak had offered him, but the Lord would not allow him to curse the children of Israel. Thus, he devised a plot where Yahweh would bring judgment against his own people, Israel. And so in this dark chapter of rebellion and death, there was one bright star. As I said, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron. So verses 1 through 5 we read, Now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit 
harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to their sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel also joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people of Israel. Let me read that again. Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. So Yahweh would not allow Balaam to curse the children of Israel. So Balaam, a prophet for hire, according to Jude 11, a man who loved the wages of the unrighteous, according to 2 Peter 2.15, a man who taught doctrine that went against the commandments of Yahweh, according to Revelation 2.14. He taught the king of Moab, a way in which he might cause Israel to stumble. We need to remember in this life that from time to time when a direct attack of Satan does not work in our lives, he often will attack indirectly to get at them, to get at us. And sadly, it worked for the nation of Israel here. In Revelation 2.14, it tells us, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. With Yahweh's anger aroused against the children of Israel, he called for Israel's leaders to hang the offenders before him in the sun, in the daylight. God wanted all Israel to see the high cost of their sin. Now, it's not been addressed yet, but it will be in the book of Deuteronomy where God would speak through Moses saying, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is a curse of God. And this is certainly true in this chapter in Numbers 25 that these who were hung in the sun in front of God, they were the curse of God. Yet at the first coming of Jesus, we learn that he was cursed, that we might be blessed. As no doubt, Paul had this passage from Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, which says he who is hanged is a curse from God. Perhaps he even had this account in Numbers 25 on his mind when he wrote concerning Christ. Galatians 3, 13, and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, 
that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So God set this standard for Israel, and technically they're not in the promised land. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan River, just camped across from Jericho, but they haven't technically stepped foot in the land of promise yet. But God set this standard in Deuteronomy that if someone was hung on a tree, that they would be put in the grave that evening before the sun went down. And the custom of Rome at Jesus' first coming was just to let the bodies hang there. It was a great deterrent of crime that you had these bodies hanging. It would probably cause many to not to want to go against Rome. But in keeping with the word of God, even in his death, Jesus was buried that same day that it would not go against God's word. He became a curse for us that we might receive the promise of God. So I'm going to tie together verses 6 through 9 and 14 and 15. Actually, I put 14 and 15 in my notes, and then I changed it. So since I said it, I'll read it that way. Because we get insight on the names of uh, a couple of people who committed a great act against the Lord before Moses and the people in the sight of the tabernacle. In verse 6, it says, Indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Mennonite woman who in the sight of Moses and the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he was flaunting his sin. Verse 7, Now when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. He went in after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000, and verses 14 and 15. Now the names, name of the Israelite who was killed, who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the leader of the father's house among the Simonites, and the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer. He was the head of the people of the father's house of Midian. And so we learn their names. We'll read about them again later. But we learn the names there in uh, verses 14 and 15. So clearly, I didn't catch this when I was going through this in the first couple of times, but it tells us that Zimri was a leader from the tribe of Simeon. So the Lord just commanded through Moses to tell the leaders of Israel to every one of them, hang their men. Those who were guilty from their tribe, they had the responsibility to judge and to be uh, the judge, the jury, and the executioner, to hang their men, to stop this plague. And we just learn here now that their people were dying, a plague of 24,000 people dying. So people were being judged through the judges, through the leaders of Israel. God had sent some kind of plague that was causing others to die because of this great sin. 
But here, one of the leaders in Israel from the tribe of Simeon was also committing a horrid act. He was flaunting his sin before the people took a woman of the Midianites in the sight of Moses and the people who were weeping before the Lord at the temple of God and took this woman right into his tent to have sexual relations with her. And Phineas, when he saw it, he caught up a javelin a javelin, and went into the tent after them and thrust them both through. And in doing that, a plague was stopped among the children of Israel. But not before 24,000 people died. So Peter... And I've mentioned part of this, but I'm going to read the context. And maybe this was on Peter's mind when he was writing in 2 Peter 2, 12 through 16. He mentions Balaam there. He says, 2 Peter 2, 12, But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. And they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So no doubt Peter had this account from Numbers on his mind when he was penning those words, thinking about Balaam and how he caused the king of Moab to uh, persuade the women of his country to get the children of Israel to sin, and it works. 24,000 people died as a result of that. But the zeal of Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, He was a younger man, but he zealously fought for Yahweh. And he exacted judgment upon this couple. He stopped the plague and caused 24,000 people to lose their lives. In Numbers 31, Moses would send 1,000 men from each tribe to war against Midian. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpet in his hand, that Phineas was not only a priest, but he became a warrior. In fact, he led 12,000 men into battle when they went against the Midianites. And again, in Psalm 106, 28 through 31, they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor, and they ate sacrifices made to the dead, and thus they provoked God to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. And that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. That was accounted. His action of taking up a javelin 
and piercing the bodies of this couple was accounted to him for righteousness. Have you heard that phrase before? Accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul writes about this also in Romans, how his faith in God was accounted to him for righteousness. This was a deed that Phineas did when he stood up and intervened. God accounted it to him for righteousness. And some believe that, some of the commentators believe that it meant that the high priestly line would then be distinguished in the line of Phineas from that point forward. For Aaron and his sons, there were other sons who were connected to Aaron. But this was kind of making the line of Phineas that line where the high priests were supposed to come. It didn't always work that way. Well, think about this as we think about what we've read so far. Israel sinning. The nation is in a mess. They're committing harlotry before the Lord. Easy for you to say, not for me. Um, people are dying. The faithful of Israel are weeping in front of the tabernacle. Moses is there with them. But Phineas rises up, a man of action, a man zealous for the Lord, zealous for Yahweh. And I, I would say that we need in this world today both types of warriors. Moses and the faithful who were praying at the tabernacle, but also those who are like Phineas who are willing to take a stand for the Lord, to move them to action, to do what perhaps the prayerful saints were afraid to do. But we need both types of warriors in this world today. One time I was delivering food to someone and this woman that we often, Lily and I would minister to her uh, throughout the years and often a need of food. So I was delivering food there and she was saying at this one time that it's like I'm trapped in this place. I can't get out. I, I can't serve anyone. And at the time, Lily was going through cancer treatment. So this is going several years back. And I said, oh, there's something that you could do for us, for Lily and I. You can pray. You don't have to go anywhere to pray. You can pray right where you're at. Because at that time for Lily and I, our need was very great. We need those prayer warriors. But I would say we also need those like Phineas who are willing to go and our move to action. So both types of warriors needed today. So zeal for Yahweh, verses 10 through 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. The Lord said, he's got my zeal, my type of zeal. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him, a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So his action of killing this couple 
is described from Yahweh's perspective as being zealous with the zeal of God. It speaks about a righteous jealousy of the things for God. His zeal moved him to action. When Zimri and Cosby had blazingly flaunted their sin before the children of Israel, and God rewarded Phinehas with a covenant of peace, an everlasting priesthood for him and his descendants. As I said, some commentators suggest that the priesthood of the high priest would then be channeled through Phinehas. But regarding Phinehas, Matthew Henry, commentator from way back, back in the 1500s, he wrote, So much does God delight in showing mercy that he is well pleased with those who are instrumental in turning away his wrath. This is the best service we can do to our people, that we may contribute something toward it by our prayers, by our endeavors, in places to bring the wickedness of the wicked to an end. So even Matthew Henry, by our prayers and by our endeavors. And so you got some who are praying, some who are moved to action, but combined they bring an end to wickedness. And I tell you, we'll do a prophecy update next week, and I don't know where I'm going with the prophecy update, but um, man, wickedness is abounding in our world today. And we need prayer warriors and those who are willing also to take action. So I read, already read uh, verses 14 and 15 mentioning that of the two individuals, Cosby and uh, Zimri. And so picking up in verse 16, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites and attack them for they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Cosby and the daughter of the leader of Midian and their sister who was killed in the days of the plague because of Peor. So this is future. This won't take place, this attack, until Numbers 31. And we'll read about that. But the reason for the attack, and we discover in this chapter, I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but two countries have been mentioned, Moab and Midian. And so they were working together toward the demise of Israel. Moab and Midian worked together to entice Israel. Therefore, the Lord charged Moses to attack the Midianites. And that is recorded for us in Numbers 31. But verse 16 of Numbers 31 says this, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So here we learn that it was Balaam who was behind this attack. He was a prophet for hire. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was greedy for gain. He had a doctrine that was against the Lord and he taught Moab and the Midianites to cause Israel to sin. Today, there are many who are following the way of Balaam, running greedily after the heir of Balaam for profit. 
to counter this, we need champions like Phineas, those who are zealous for God with God's zeal. They have a, a zeal like God. Not to pierce the offenders through with the spear, but to let the sword of the word of God pierce their hearts by sharing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was pierced for our transgressions. And only through Jesus can we find that true peace, that grace of the Lord, that covenant of peace. Jesus said in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So the book of Numbers is titled in our English Bibles, Numbers, because there's two censuses taken in this book, back in chapters 2 and 3, and here in chapter 26. I am not reading all the names of the various tribes mentioned here, but I am going to pick up a few of the verses, and we'll look at some numbers as we go through Numbers, chapters 26, chapter 26 here. So the first four verses, a command to take the census. And it came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their father's houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. So Moses and Eliezer the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So we found them camping here uh, several chapters ago. They're not moving. They're getting ready. They're staging to enter the promised land. They're still there. Verse 4, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses, the children of Israel, who came out of the land of Egypt. So 40 years Earlier, they took a census. Now, they take a second census, thus the book of Numbers. They're counting again. And that counting is found in verses 5 through 51. As I said, I'm not reading all these verses. They have a lot of those Jewish names that no one can rightly pronounce. And even if we get it right... I have a suspicion if we were with someone of the day of Moses, they would say it differently. But here, the second census shows us through 40 years of wilderness wanderings, God faithfully sustained Israel in very harsh conditions. And they list out in almost the exact same order, only two names were flipped, and that is Ephraim and Manasseh, but the order is, other than that, is the same as they were listed in the first census. So it begins with the tribe of Reuben, Israel's eldest son. And these are uh, Jacob's sons by the wife of Leah and also, uh, also one by Zilpha. And so from the tribe of Reuben, in the first census, they had 46,500. In the second, 43,000. 730, so uh, 2,770 less for the tribe of Reuben. 
This one's really interesting to me. The children of Simeon, the secondborn of Jacob through Leah. The first census, 59,300. The second census, 22,200. So they had 37,100 less men from 20 years old and up than at the first census. Why would that be? Well, I believe it's because Jacob spoke a word over Simeon and Levi, saying in Genesis 49, 5 through 7, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, while Simeon will receive an inheritance in the promised land, ultimately Simeon would be absorbed in the tribe of Judah and they would more or less become one. But God sees them separate and they had a big decline. I think that's why uh, the big decline just kind of set them up to be divided in the land. Of course, Levi, we know that they were divided as the priestly line. So the children of Gad, the son of Zilpha, the handmaid of Leah. First census, 45,650. Second census, 40,500. 5,100 less. Children, children of Judah in the first census. 74,600 in the second census, 76,500, an increase of almost 2,000. The children of Issachar, the first census, 54,400. Second census, 64,300, an increase of nearly 10,000. Zubalin, the first census, 57,400. The second census, 60,500, an increase of just over 3,000. And the second listing are by Jacob's wife, Rachel. We begin with Manasseh in the first census. Ephraim went first, but the children of Manasseh listed here first. Joseph's firstborn son. They had 32,200 in the second census, 52,700. So they increased by 20,500. The children of Ephraim in the first census, they had 40,500. They decreased in the second census by 8,000, so 32,500. So the two sons of Joseph, Jacob claimed as his own. And so they're counted as the 12 tribes. That's why we never read of Joseph being in the counts of the 12 tribes, but his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, being part of that number. This is the children of Benjamin in the first census, 35,400 in the second census, 45,600, a gain of 10,200 more. In the third list, these are the sons of Jacob by his wives, Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, and Zilpha, Leah's handmaid. We begin with the children of Dan who had 62,700 in the first census and then gained 1,700 more 
to have 64,400 in the second census, the children of Asher, the son of Zilpha, 41,500 in the first census, 53,400 in the second census, so a gain of nearly 12,000 people. And the children of Naphtali, the son of Bilhah, 53,400, they decreased by 8,000 to make them 45,400. So a little smaller in the first census, the total number was 600 and 600, 603,550 men, so over 600,000 men. The second census, 601,730 men, so the decrease of some 1,820 men less, but for the most part, about the same size. And this is only counting the men from 20 years old and above, those who were able to go to war. And so God had proven himself in Israel to be faithful. After the census, the Lord moves on and talks about the division of the promised land in verses 52 through 56. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, and these lands shall be divided among as an inheritance according to the number of the names to the larger tribe you shall give a larger inheritance. To the small tribe, you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lots. And they shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot of their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. So the sense is not only numbering the men for war, but also how much land they would have. And I checked this out. This is the first time we read of them dividing the land by lots. We'll learn a lot about it as we continue on from this point. But this is new, that where the Lord talks about the division of the land, that it was to be by lots and the casting of lots. Some believe that that casting of lots was actually the... Involvement of the high priest and the Urim and the Thummim of the high priest used to make these determinations. And we'll read about this taking place in Joshua 14, where they took by lot the inheritance of the Lord. So we'll read about it when we get to Joshua 14. But this wasn't a game of chance. This was a determination of Yahweh for the people in Proverbs 16, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So God would lay out the different tribes in the promised land as he saw fit by the casting of lots. And so the Levites also were counted in the second census in verses 57 through 62. And they were numbered there of the Levites according to their families of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the family of the Kohathites, and the of Memory, and the family of the Mirrorites. These are the families of the Levites, the families of the Libnites, and all these names. I'm not even going to read them. I'll just trip them up. But the name of Amram's wife, they mentioned uh, Moses' father, 
Amram and Jochebed, and the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt, and Amram, she was born to him, Aaron and Moses, and their sister Miriam to Aaron, were born Nahab, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and Nadab and Abihu died as they offered profane fire before the Lord. Verse 62, now those who are numbered of them were 23,000, every male from one month old and above. For they are not numbered among the children of Israel because there is no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. Later on, God would say in the days of Joshua, Joshua 13, 14, that the inheritance of the tribe of Levi the sacrifice of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance as he said to them. So the sacrifices, the meat, the grain offerings, and that which comes into the temple, that became the inheritance of the tribe of Israel. God claimed them as his own, as the firstborn of Israel. So we're only given their total number. They didn't break it up between the divisions of Levi their total of being 23,000 from one month old and older, counting all the males in the tribes, tribe of Levi. And finally, we get to Joshua and Caleb. 63 through 65, these are those who were numbered by Moses and Eliezer the priest, who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So that's the third time we've learned that they are camping by the Jordan across from Jericho. They're staged to enter the promised land. But among these were not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord has said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb, the son of Jethunah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So 38 years earlier, Joshua and Caleb stood for God when the other 10 spies stood against the command of the Lord. They stood for God and tried to challenge the people to be faithful to the Lord. And yet they refused and almost stoned, wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb to death. But God rewarded them. And I find this interesting and and just think about it as we will get into Joshua. Um, we'll see it right now. Moses is 120 years old. The next in line to that of Moses in age is Joshua and Caleb. All the other generation of that generation have died. And we don't know the exact age of Joshua and Caleb, because it doesn't tell us, it tells us that Joshua was 110 years old when he died. But we do read when Caleb asked to take his inheritance in the promised land, he said, I am 85 years old. So they're right, I'm believing, about the same age. So you have Moses, 120 years old, Joshua and Caleb, right around 80 years old at this point. And then everyone beneath them that they were, you know, 20 years or less underneath them. 
So you had a 120-year-old, a couple of 80-year-olds, and maybe some 60-year-olds and downward. And so it would really make those three individuals stand out. It's just something I ponder. It's not even written in my notes, but I can't get away from that thought of the age difference of these men who went before the children of Israel at this time. So God had given them his word that they would continue and enter into the promised land. And God has proven himself faithful for all the first generation that came out of Egypt had died in the wilderness, all except for Joshua and Caleb. Numbers 14, 28 through 32, the Lord said, as I live, just as I have spoken to you in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb and Joshua, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. Well, today we live in a very different world that seems to be teetering on disaster in many different fronts. We may often feel as if we have no hope. And in one sense, that could be true. People are losing hope in our fellow man, in our own nation, in the nations of this world. We see a rise of natural disasters. Right now, we're on Sunday, that great earthquake that took place in Turkey of Syria. And right now, the death toll this morning, 11,000 just high-rises collapsing there. We've seen a rise of natural disasters. And, you know, prophecy update next week, I'm sure I'll talk about climate change. They will give reasons why of these things. But the Lord, we know why, because Jesus said toward the time of his second coming that there'll be wars and rumors of wars. There'll be famines. There'll be pestilence. All these things will take place and they'll increase more and more. And the closer we get to that time of the Lord's return, there's been pandemics and threats of more pandemics to come. There's food and energy crisis, just to name a few things. And I'm not trying to scare anyone. We, we know the world that we're living in. But I want to encourage us to have wisdom in the things of God that the Lord has given us, that we may be people that put our trust in the same God that sustained Israel through the wilderness wanderings, knowing that he will also sustain us in our wanderings upon this earth, that God is faithful to his word. He will do all that he has promised. The goal is not a new house or a new car, although we may one day get a new house and new car while on this earth. The ultimate goal is to enter into that promised land of heaven. And the only way we enter in is by the blood of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24, the word tells us, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who calls you, he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. And God is faithful. And Father, though we didn't get to chapter 27 tonight, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed faithful. Even to the children of Israel, Lord, at one point in the book of Numbers, Scripture tells us that Israel had rebelled against the Lord ten times. God, you said, these ten times that you have rebelled against me. And tonight, Lord, we read of a eleventh rebellion, and there would be more to come. And yet, Lord, you remain faithful. Everything that you promised, you did. And you brought the children of Israel into the promised land. No, not that first generation, but the second generation being led by Joshua and Caleb. You were faithful then, Lord, and we know that you'll be faithful now. So, Father, help us to be like the prayer warriors there in Numbers 25, when the depravity in Israel had become so bad that death was among their camp, there was Moses and several of the faithful people there before the tabernacle, crying out to you, weeping, Lord, for their people. But there was also a young priest named Phineas a man who had the zeal of God in him. And he was so zealous, Lord, that he took action. And the action that he took at that time stopped the plague that was killing their people. Lord, today in our country, there are so many things killing our nation. We have fentanyl and drugs, Lord, just robbing the youth of our nation and those who are older as well. We have those, Lord, who apparently desire that they want to take their own life, but they just don't simply want to take their own life. They want to take the lives of as many as they can with them, and they make these mass murders. And the result of that, Lord, of people dying in our land, So help us, Lord, your church, to weep for our nation, to pray for this nation. And we pray, Lord, raise up among us those who are like Phineas, who are willing to step out and to be men and women of action. And may it be, Lord, by your grace, that you would stay your hand of judgment against this nation just one last time that revival may come. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. I keep hearing, listening to various podcasts and such that People keep saying that church doesn't need to concern themselves with the Old Testament. And I think, how in the world can you understand the New Testament without the Old Testament? 
I love going through these passages, though some are very hard to go through. But we learn about the nature of our God and everything that Christ fulfilled at his first coming was found in the Old Testament scriptures. So if you want to read about those 330 fulfillments, that's the numbers that the um, theologians put on that, of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus at his first coming. You have to look in the uh, Old Testament to find those prophecies. So I pray God would continue to bless us as we study his word and as we continue in the book of Numbers. Next week, though, prophecy update. Don't know where I'm headed, but I'm sure the Lord will get me somewhere before we get back together next week. For the guys, Saturday morning from 8 to 10, we have our uh, breakfast and study breakfast. We'll be looking at chapter 3 of Calvary Distinctives. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.